Hello and welcome to the October 2017 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo. This month we're taking a look at a load of cases from Strasbourg, from the Supreme Court, the Court of Appeal and of course the Upper Tribunal. These range from the sublime, including private religious worship, um, cover trafficking and torture, all the way down to some of the ridiculous and a uh, few procedural points. I'm going to end by taking a look at a couple of examples of media coverage of Home Office decisions and also the harsh rules that these coverage, these bits of coverage highlight. All of the material is drawn from the October 2017 blog posts on free movement. And if you want to claim CPD points for listening, then head over to www.freemovement.org.uk slash training. So starting at the top and working down, I'm going to look first at the Strasbourg case that I mentioned, which is a case called Ndidi against the United Kingdom. Now, this case has the beginnings of a tabloid splash, but it doesn't go the way that the Daily Mail and others might like it to um, to enable them to howl their screams of, of, of rage. So this is a Nigerian national who was convicted of drug dealing and who'd lived in the UK from the age of two, and he sought to block his deportation um, by recourse to Article 8 and uh, appeal to Strasbourg in the end. Um, he, as I say, entered the UK just before his second birthday. Um, he fell into trouble with the law from the age of 12, um, continued to have problems throughout his, throughout his teenage and early adult years. At 18, he was warned he might be liable to deportation, but ultimately he ended up pleading guilty to drug dealing in 2006 and received a seven years detention in a young offenders institution. On release, he was subject to um, the automatic deportation provisions of the UK Borders Act 2007, um, and essentially he failed in his appeals against this domestically. Now, this may well seem like a pretty harsh decision because he had lived in the UK for 28 years. His criminal offences were committed when he was either a minor or a young adult. He hadn't offended since his release in March 2011, and he had a young son as well. Now, um, he also pleaded a more general argument about um, the changes to the immigration rules in 2012 violating the ECHR, the Convention, because of the need to show exceptional circumstances and that imposing a higher hurdle than the proportionality test under Article 8. And he also argued that paragraphs 399 and 399A of the 2012 rules were discriminatory um, because he'd been treated less favourably than a foreign criminal sentenced to less than four years of detention. Now, he hadn't raised these um, other arguments um, in the UK courts, and Strasbourg held that he'd therefore failed to exhaust domestic remedies and was unwilling to consider the arguments. So, unfortunately, that particularly the broader argument about exceptional circumstances and proportionality, it would have been extremely interesting to, to hear what Strasbourg had to say about that. Um, but um, we, we don't get the chance, unfortunately, because it wasn't pleaded below and um, they weren't willing to admit the arguments. Um, the court essentially holds that um, member states and signatory states um, can um, adjust their uh, approach according to a certain margin of appreciation and essentially held that they weren't, uh, Strasbourg wasn't willing to um, interfere with judgments on its uh, by itself and um, dismiss the appeal essentially. Um, now the, the court did indicate that it might be willing to exercise closer scrutiny of deportation orders if there'd been changes in an individual circumstances since the date of the last um, domestic decision but um, yeah, it's a fairly limited um, caveat in fact. So 
in, in some ways, the case of Ndidi isn't of, of particularly general interest, but it is an example um, of, of a case um, that, that hasn't succeeded on Article 8 grounds, despite you know, arguably very strong facts. Um, and I guess the, the battle on whether the um, existing rules are compliant with the um, ECHR um, remains to be fought another day. Moving on now to the Supreme Court. On the 18th of October, and with impeccable timing because that day was anti-slavery day, the Supreme Court handed down two judgments in cases looking at diplomatic and state immunity, potentially enabling diplomats to traffic and enslave their domestic workers with impunity. Um, the first of these cases is called Rays Against Al-Malki, and it's um, 2017 UKSC 61. Now, in this case, a Philippine national um, brought a claim before the Employment Tribunal against a Saudi Arabian diplomat and his wife who had employed her at their home in London, and she claimed that she'd been trafficked, that she'd suffered racial discrimination and harassment, and she'd not been paid the national living wage. The couple claimed immunity from civil suit. The Supreme Court found in favour of Ms. Ray's and um, basically that the employment of Ms. Ray's was not in the course of official functions and as such immunity ended when the posting was finished. Um, now the other case is the um, Benkar Bush and Jana linked cases 2017 UKSC 62 and this involves two Moroccan domestic workers um, previously in, in the employ of the London embassies of Sudan and Libya and they brought claims for un, um, unfair dismissal. It was contended that the states enjoyed immunity and the Supreme Court basically held that um, parts of the State Immunity Act 1978, which confer immunity in English law, are incompatible with Article 6 of the European Convention on Human Rights and Article 47 of the EU Charter of Fundamental Rights. Um, the Act um, unfortunately discriminates unjustifiably on the grounds of nationality. So two really good outcomes from those cases, um, which hopefully will assist in bringing potential traffickers um, to court and um, ensuring that um, they can't act with impunity in future. Now, um, two days later, um, on the 20th of October, the government announced changes to what's called the National Referral Mechanism, the NRM, which is the official framework for identifying those who may have been trafficked or enslaved. Now, there have been various different criticisms of the way that the National Referral Mechanism works and the um, overlap, really, between immigration concerns and um, trying to protect victims of trafficking. Um, and the r uh, amendments, really, that, are, that were announced have been welcomed by the Anti-Slavery Commissioner, Kevin Highland, and do genuinely seem to be good news if, that is, the, the Home Office actually implements these properly. So one of the reforms is to create a single expert unit at the Home Office to handle all cases referred from frontline staff and to make decisions about whether someone is a victim of modern slavery, which will replace the current case management units in the National Crime Agency and UK Visas and Immigration, and which the Home Office says will be completely separate from the immigration system. There will also be an independent panel of experts to review all negative decisions, which should add significantly to the scrutiny such cases currently receive, and a new digital system to support the NRM process, 
making it easier for those on the front line to refer victims for support and enabling data to be captured and analysed to better aid prevention and law enforcement, whatever that means. Um, We did recently introduce a trafficking course on free movement, so if you're interested in these issues and you want to know more about how the NRM works, um, then do sign up as a member and take a look at the course, which is based on materials um, uh, edited by Alison Harvey um, and sourced originally from the anti-trafficking and labour exploitation units to whom we're grateful for use of their materials. Okay, moving on now from the Supreme Court down to the Court of Appeal, um, it's an interesting case called AS Iran against Secretary of State for the Home Department 2017 EWCA Civ 1539. Now, this is a case that raises some interesting issues around um, the idea of discretion, around concealment, and, and about um, private attributes or private um, features, should we say, to, um, uh, to to an asylum claim where a person is, um, in this particular instance, um, relying on their religious beliefs, um, but of course also with potentially wider implications for um, political cases and also for cases based on sexuality. So this is a case where ultimately the appeal fails, unfortunately. And the the reason why it fails is that the Court of Appeal holds that um, essentially the upper tribunal had been correct to hold that um, the applicant who was who'd converted to Christianity many years previously and was from Iran um, had previously only ever worshipped in private and therefore on return would continue to worship in private and therefore on the H.J. Iran approach, the Upper Tribunal and Court of Appeal held that um, the, there was no breach, basically, and that it was no imposition on her, essentially, to continue to, to, to worship in private. Now, the, the criticism of this reasoning is really that the Upper Tribunal and the Court of Appeal have confused the idea of privacy with the idea of concealment. And the argument is that... Um, being forced to do something and conceal something isn't the same as doing something privately, voluntarily. And we've seen quite a few arguments about that in the context of sexuality-based claims, and um, the, the courts haven't really been willing to engage with that issue yet. So um, it, it's, it's quite an interesting one. It's still out there, and it, it's still a point that I think deserves and needs to be pushed further. There is an arguable inconsistency between um, what EU law says about this and also what um, UK law says about that in the case of um, HJ Iran. Um, there have been arguments in sexuality-based claims which haven't succeeded on this basis yet, but um, it's it's something that we need to keep on pushing at, in my view. Turning now to the High Court, we saw the case of Medical Justice against Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2017 EWHC 2461 Admin. Now, this was a very important judicial review about a controversial change that the Home Office um, introduced to its definition of torture in some of its policies, in particular on immigration detention. And essentially, the Home Office changed its definition of torture um, so that it was in line with the UN Convention Against Torture, UNCAT, which is narrower than the other international definitions of torture, such as in the European Convention on Human Rights. So the UNCAT definition... Um, refers specifically to actions carried out by states. So it's basically torture, but only by state parties. Um, The the wider definition of torture makes no distinction between state or non-state. And, of course, if if you're on the receiving end of uh, of that 
level of really nasty, unpleasant treatment, then you don't care who um, does it necessarily. It's, it, it, the, the suffering is going to be the same. And, of course, the need for protection from arbitrary um, immigration detention and the damage that it would do is going to be the same as well. So why the Home Office changed its definition of torture, um, it remains quite a mystery. And the Home Office did announce after losing the, this judicial review that it wasn't going to appeal and that effectively it will just um, change its definition back to, to what it had been previously. Um, so the, the whole thing is, is frankly rather baffling and uh, it, ones that are a loss to understand why the Home Office had changed its policy in the first place, what it hoped to achieve by that other than causing misery and suffering to victims of appalling abuses and um, you know, given that they haven't appealed it, uh, what they thought they were doing at all. Anyway, there we go. Okay, let's move on again. Um, this is a uh, another High Court case, a case called um, Sivi Yogam against Secretary of State for the Home Department 2017 EWHC 2575 Admin. And this is a um, Tier 2 sponsor case. And it, it, it's quite an interesting one because it, it's got some examples of basically how not to um, go about um, defending oneself from um, home office decisions. So essentially the the um, litigant in this case, um, Siva Yogam, is a religious charity. It serves Hindu and Tamil communities in London. They've been having difficulty finding priests in the UK and Europe. So in 2009 they'd applied for registration as a tier two sponsor which would allow them to bring in religious workers from abroad. Now, what essentially the um, organisation seems not to have complied with the various different fairly laborious Home Office requirements that are imposed on sponsors, and when the Home Office realised this, um, the organisation essentially fessed up, admitted that um, their, their shortcomings, and um, said that they would um, start complying in future. That wasn't good enough for the Home Office. The Home Office considered them a threat to immigration control and decided to revoke the sponsor licence, which would mean that any existing religious workers would um, not be able to continue working and that um, they wouldn't be able to sponsor future religious workers either, which would obviously um, be rather problematic for those concerned. Um, the challenge was brought and um, essentially it, it fails. The um, one can understand what happened here because um, the, the main challenge in some ways succeeded. Um, one of the main reasons that the Home Office had given, if, if actually possibly the only reason really the Home Office had given in its um, revocation decision, proved to be unfounded and it was um, a relatively um, minor issue in any event. But um, there were so many other breaches um, which had already been admitted by the um, sponsor in this case that the judge felt that um, the fact that the main reason wasn't really didn't really hold water wasn't enough to save um, the the organisation, and the appeal um, was therefore the judicial review was therefore dismissed. Had those admissions not been made, or um, had the had legal advice been sought at an earlier stage in this case, then the outcome wouldn't necessarily have been the same. Um, right, moving on to the upper tribunal, starting with a couple of cases on curtailment letters um, and service, basically. So the first one is um, a case called Udin 2000 Order Notice to File Bangladesh 2017 UK UT 408 IAC. And essentially in this case, the Home Office held a claimant's address in Bangladesh, but decided not to send the notice of curtailment decision to the address in Bangladesh and instead served it to file. 
and that meant that the claimant never received any notice. Um, the upper tribunal held that that wasn't lawful, that wasn't in compliance with the 2000 order, um, and therefore there had not been effective and lawful service, meaning that curtailment had never had effect, leave had therefore continued, and the claimant was therefore not an overstayer. So a uh, good result for that particular claimant, and it just goes to show that looking at the detail and the procedure can pay dividends. Okay, another case, um, this one is a case called Mustafa against Secretary of State for the Home Department, again on the 2000 order, a notice of notification of representation this time, reference 2017 UKUT 407 IAC. So in this case, um, the uh, claimant had sent to the Home Office notification that he was changing his representative, or they had a representative, and that had been properly served on the Home Office. The Home Office hadn't properly recorded it and had served the notice um, to him personally, I think at the wrong address, um, and essentially that was um, unlawful, basically. So, um, again, another example of um, detailed knowledge of the regulations potentially being very helpful. Looking at another upper tribunal case, this one it's R on the application of Anjum against Entry Clearance Officer Islamabad. Entrepreneur Business Expansion Fairness Generally 2017 UKUT 406 IAC. Now this is a President McCloskey case involving a genuine entrepreneur um, issue in the immigration rules. So it's uh, an application by uh, Nadim Anjum who applies for a Tier 1 Entrepreneur Visa early in 2015. The application is refused, entry clearance officer taking the view after an interview that um, the applicant wasn't a genuine entrepreneur. Now, 2015, this case is decided in 2017, so it's fairly protracted um, litigation, two and a half years or so. And the tribunal case is an interesting one because it holds that, first of all, the interview was unfair. It was basically a checklist of questions without any kind of probing whatsoever, and it, it's not surprising that the um, interviewer was ignorant of the um, interviewee's business at the end of it because it, the, the questions were so standardised as to be basically useless. Um, the other, uh, and, and the tribunal goes on to say that is something that can be taken into account um, in a legal challenge. The other interesting issue is that the tribunal holds that the um, sector of state was wrong on interpretation of the rules and that it was okay for the applicant to be spending uh, £50,000 of the requisite minimum £200,000 in a particular way, uh, essentially investing it into a, an existing business. So um, interesting result both on the kind of procedural fairness issues around the interview, which also applies potentially in genuine student um, issues in Tier 4 cases, and then also on interpretation of the entrepreneur rules. Right, moving on to uh, a quick explainer um, put together by one of my colleagues, Nath Gabliki, and this is on immigration and nationality law following surrogacy agreements. And this is looking at a potentially very problematic um, situation that can arise in surrogacy cases where um, the child is born abroad, which is, is often the case in surrogacy uh, arrangements, and there are then questions about who is the legal father and mother and also whether the child has automatically acquired British nationality or not, and if not, how the child can be brought to the UK and how the nationality situation might potentially be 
rectified. So here Nath looks at um, the definition of mother and father, goes through the Home Office policy on surrogacy cases, looks at the options for entry, and it's basically a very useful post if you come across these kinds of cases. I've had to advise on these before, and if only people would look this sort of stuff up before they entered into the arrangements, life would be a lot easier further down the line, but unfortunately that's not always the case. And, and for example, I've, I've come across cases where um, there's, there's not necessarily any um, legal um, mother or father in a, in a case um, for various different reasons because of the way that those terms are defined, and um, you know they can be they can be very problematic. Okay, finally on the um, cases, there's a case called AMS against Secretary of State for Work and Pensions. 2017 UKUT 381 AAC. Now that AAC, this is the Administrative Appeals Chamber rather than the Immigration Appeals Chamber with which we're normally familiar on this blog. Now the reason why we've written this up is because it's um, a person who applied for benefits but was refused on the basis that she didn't have a right of residency. And it's an example of a person who's been caught out by the comprehensive sickness insurance rules and the need for self-sufficiency. So the lady in question at the time of application is 88 years old. She's a widow. She had been married to a British citizen who'd served in the British Armed Forces, who died in 1994. Her children were British nationals, and she'd moved to the UK in 2006 to stay close to two of those children. When she'd arrived, she'd had fairly considerable savings, but um, she used those up over time. And at the time she applies for these benefits, um, basically she's kind of run out of money and she would be more or less dependent on benefits. And the reason why she doesn't qualify for benefits is because she didn't have comprehensive sickness insurance earlier on when she did have enough money to be self, um, self-sufficient. And then by the time she did get comprehensive self-sickness insurance, she was running out of money and she was no longer self-sufficient in monetary terms. So um, unfortunately, her application was refused. Now, that's not necessarily going to be a problem for those seeking status after Brexit for reasons we explore on the blog. So, so don't be excessively alarmed by that if you're if you're worried about um, status and um, on the basis of self-sufficiency. But it's an example of what can go wrong under the under the present arrangements. Right, I said right at the start that I was going to finish by looking at a couple of cases that highlight problems in the immigration rules. The first of these is the case of Dan Newton and his family. And um, this is a classic example of a real injustice that's done by the spouse immigration rules. So Mr Newton is British. He's married to um, Carla Zamora, an Ecuadorian citizen. They've got three children. All the children are British. And they've been living together in the UK. They moved to Abu Dhabi for work, lived there for nearly five years. And then all of a sudden, Mr Newton's employment is terminated with little notice and no prior warning and um, they decide to return to the UK. And the problem is that they can't, basically, or at least they can't do it together, because not only um, would the spouse, the British spouse, have to be earning £18,600, and it is conceivable you might be able to find a job paying that much from abroad, although it certainly isn't easy. Um, But not only that, you've got to have been earning it for six months in order to sponsor a spouse, and you simply can't do that. So either... Um, the British spouse, Mr Newton in this case, has to find employment with a salary of 18600 and work in the job for six months before he can sponsor his wife, um, which means that the children have either got to come with him and then he's got to somehow work in that job for six months earning that much money, 
or he's got to come alone and leave the children behind with his spouse until he can sponsor his spouse. And of course, at the point at which you're moving back to the UK, you don't know how long it's going to find you, it's going to take you to find a job. So it's an extremely difficult position to be in where the rules effectively force the family to split apart. Um, now, that's an extremely unfortunate and arguably very unfair state of affairs but that's how the rules are and unfortunately mr newton's case as, as far as i can see um the home office hasn't relented anyway and um I, I think he's still stuck so um i don't know what's going to happen in that particular case the other case i wanted to highlight um had a, a slightly happier ending although it's a tragic set of circumstances. So this is Simon and Leah Waterman, who returned to the UK from the Philippines in 2015 after Mr Waterman suffers from a stroke and develops um, fairly serious care needs. Um, they also have two children together who are both British. And unfortunately, in terms of immigration law status, um, the wife, um, Leah Waterman, enters on a visit visa and then makes a human rights application for further leave to remain on the basis that her spouse and the children um, re require her physical presence in the UK and her care. Now, the, the, there is a potential route in some circumstances, which is EX1, where there are exceptional circumstances, a person can be allowed to stay, um, but that's not, it's not actually possible to get onto the EX1 route as a visitor. So the um, immigration rules generally would seem to prevent somebody in Miss Waterman's situation um, from succeeding in an application. However, that's not quite the end of the story because from 10th of August 2017, a new paragraph has been introduced into Appendix FM, which is at paragraph GEN 3.2. Now, that's quite important because it essentially it, it follows the MM case in the Supreme Court for those who've been following this litigation on, on spouse visas and so on. And essentially it provides a effectively a carve-out from any of the requirements of Appendix FM um, where there would be a breach of human rights and that's that's where there would be unjustifiably, unjustifiably harsh consequences for the applicant, their partner, a relevant child or another family member whose Article 8 rights it's evident from the information would be affected by a decision to refuse the application. So it's a general carve-out from Appendix FM because of Article 8 and obviously in a case like this where you've got a stroke victim who requires care and you've got two British children who who need their parents you'd have thought that this would potentially be a breach of article 8 when the only reason it seems why she can't succeed is because um, of her visit visa status um, otherwise she would very strongly arguably uh, meet the requirements of appendix ex1 well happily once that case was highlighted in the mainstream press um, the home office um, unit which seems to be responsible for dealing with these kind of high profile cases responded and a visa was granted so happy ending in that case okay well that's that for um this month i hope that's been helpful to you and um nice to nice to end on a happy note for a change goodbye